Well, I want to ask you to do something that I have been waiting for about six months to ask you to do. So would you take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book of Romans chapter 1 this morning. We are ecstatic about the opportunity that we have as a church to walk through this incredible New Testament book, the book of Romans this morning. If you don't own a Bible and you need one, there's one in the seat pocket there in front of you, so you feel free to take that. That's our gift to you. You can take that home with you and follow along uh, through the book of Romans. Uh, in full honesty, this morning, I, I feel like I'm about to get on a roller coaster ride. Now, I don't know wh- how you feel about roller coasters. I don't really like them very much. But anyway, when you're getting ready to get on a roller coaster, there is great excitement about what you're getting ready to do. And at the same time, you're horrified about what you're getting ready to do. And that's me, the book of Romans. The idea that we're going to walk through this incredible book over the next year is just so thrilling to my soul and the heart of your elders. We've been praying about this for months, but at the same time, it is a daunting task to approach this book and hope and pray that we rightly divide God's Word through the book of Romans. Uh, It has been called the most important letter ever written in the history of the world. It has been called a concentrated Bible, meaning... All the truths and the doctrines of the Bible, if you could boil them down in just a few chapters, you would have the book of Romans. Every major doctrine taught throughout Scripture, it is touched on and hit in the book of Romans. History reveals that the book of Romans repeatedly changes the world by changing people. Let me give you some examples. In the 16th century, there was a 21-year-old young man named Martin. And as Martin was fighting his way through a lightning thunderstorm, a bolt of lightning came down and struck very close to his feet. He thought he was almost going to thought he was going to die and he was so horrified by that event, believing that he had had an encounter with God. After that encounter, he promised God that he would give his life to becoming a monk. Now, if I was almost struck with lightning, I don't know that that's what my promise to God would be, but that was Martin Luther's promise is After that, he felt like he'd had an encounter with God, and he was overwhelmed with the majesty and the righteousness and the holiness of God, and at the same time, this realization of what he was not. And he sensed and was aware of the gap that there was between God and God's righteousness and who Martin Luther was. So Martin Luther pledged his life to the monastic lifestyle. He spent the following years of his life in rigorous pursuit of righteousness. The word righteousness literally means a right standing before God. To be right with God is the idea of righteousness. And he believed by all his religious pursuits he could bridge that gap that existed between him and God. After years of these relentless Religious pursuits, Martin Luther said, and I quote, I only grew to hate God for requiring me to do and be something that I could not do in my own strength. And then Martin Luther came to the book of Romans. And his story is he came to Romans 1.17 and it says, For in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous man will live by his faith. And Martin Luther realized by the power of the Spirit of God, the question that every human being will face at some point, God is perfect and holy and righteous and I am absolutely not. 
How will that gap ever be bridged between God and myself? And Martin Luther realized on the pages of Scripture, the answer is by faith. Everything necessary for us to be right with God has been fully done in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the proclamation of the gospel. Faith is trusting in what God and God alone has done. And Martin Luther came to that realization by grace and he said, Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and had gone through, as it were, open doors into paradise. He said, by grace I had broken through. Beautiful picture. Augustine, another man in history, about 2,000 years ago, one of the most influential men in history, his name was Augustine of Hippo. Now, not Augustine the Hippo, that's a big difference. Augustine of Hippo. He lived in a place called Algeria, modern-day Algeria. He was a man who... His early years lived in great open rebellion. Even though his mom was a strong believer and he'd been brought up in the faith, he rejected, he rebelled, he ran from it. And he lived in open expression of the flesh, his sinful life. And his testimony is that God drew him to the book of Romans and he came to Romans chapter 13 and he read and it says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. And he was broken. His own testimony, he says, I did not wish nor needed to read any further. At once with the last words of this sentence, it was as if light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart and the shadows of doubt were dispelled. I was a changed man. Book of Romans. John Calvin said, if we have gained a true understanding of this letter... We have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. He said Romans is like a doorway into the rest of the understanding of the Bible. John Stott, more modern days, fellow that died just a few years ago, is commentator, preacher, one of those guys. He, he said this, and I can relate. He, he said, I have a love-hate relationship with Romans. He said, because of its joyful and painful personal challenges. And you're going to relate to that as we read through this book together. Romans is a challenging book to us. And here's what we're going to find out as we read through Romans. You don't read the book of Romans. The book of Romans reads you. And it peers deeply down into your heart to expose who we are, who we are in light of God, all the glories of God. It is an incredible, life-transforming book. John Piper said, Romans is the single most important letter ever written. Now, just on a personal note, when I was in college many years ago, back in the day, you know, I, I was an immature follower of, a, of Christ. I'd never really been discipled. I'd never really been a person of the Word. I was just kind of drifting. And there was a man named Earl Shute who was with Campus Crusade for Christ. He took me and a few other college juniors under his wing. And he said, boys, we're going to, for the next year, spend in the book of Romans, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. And we together spent the next year through those four chapters of Romans. And I'll just tell you, I'm a changed man because of it. 
for the first time in my life through the book of Romans, I saw God as he made himself known through scripture and the greatness of God. I understood what it meant to walk in the spirit. I understood how to battle sin and this constant battle we have as Christians. Yet there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we've not been called to a life of fear, but we've been given the adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And that God is holy and sovereign and good and all of that together and much much more I'm telling you I was a changed man and I want that for you as we dive into this great book over the next few weeks and I'll just tell you you will be changed by the book of Romans one way or another meaning it is a dangerous thing to read the great truths of the book of Romans because either the great truths of the book of Romans will soften your heart and bring you to an ongoing place of worship or it will harden our hearts in a place of disobedience and rebellion. You will be changed one way or another by the book of Romans. So we're going to dive into this great book over the next few weeks together. Now, here's what the plan looks like. Let me just tell you what it's going to kind of look like over the next few weeks, how you can be a part of this. What does it look like for a church family to walk through a book of the Bible together? Well, one, in our worship gatherings, for the next year, we're going to walk through Romans verse by verse by verse. You say, a year in one book? Hey, there was a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. It took him 13 years to walk through Romans, so give us some credit, all right? We'll be okay. Your life groups will be wrestling with the truths of Romans. You'll take what you hear and hear, and you'll be discussing and praying through and making application, all these great truths of the book of Romans. And I guarantee you, your life group guide will have the answer to any question you have about Romans. Not really. You'll be wrestling through it together. I encourage you to read on your own through the book of Romans. We provided a reading plan for the next year. There's written copies. You can also go on the app and follow along there. Bury yourself in this reading of the book of Romans. Especially, it'll be so helpful for you to be reading before on Friday and Saturday what we're going to be doing in here on Sunday just so you can be prepared in your spirit and your heart for the preaching of God's word. And then we're going to memorize portions of the book of Romans. You'll be doing that in your life group. And then Wednesday night, the last thing is something called Behind the Message. Every Wednesday night, beginning this Wednesday after our family meal, we'll have something called Behind the Message. It's an opportunity for you to come in. It's open format, really discussion-based. And we'll talk about the message and go deeper into what we talked about here on Sunday morning. Every Wednesday night, it's an opportunity for you to connect there. All right? So you ready to go? All that was just introduction. Now we're going to dive in, okay? Are you ready? (laughs) Well, three of you are. Are you ready? All right. Let me give you a quick overview of the book of Romans. So on your own, whenever you're studying a book of the Bible, it's really important at the beginning to ask some questions. What do I understand about this book? So number one is this. Well, who wrote the book of Romans? And most of you know that. It was written by the Apostle Paul. He introduces himself in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, as a bondservant of Christ. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Paul wrote the book of Romans around the year A.D. 58, A.D. 60. He wrote from the city of Corinth. So as Paul was traveling around and planting churches, and he landed in Corinth, and he wrote the letter of Rome, to, to the Romans. Now go ahead and put that map up there for just a second, just so you kind of understand. He wrote from Corinth, which is modern-day Greece, real place, real city, writing to real people, and he writes to the city of Rome, which is on the... Uh, the country of Italy, modern day. Now, Paul is writing to probably a collection of house churches there that made up the church at Rome. 
He's writing to some people that he knew very well. We'll get there in chapter 16 in a few months. He had personal greetings, so he knew a lot of these people. But the majority of the church he had never met. Paul had never been to Rome. Paul had never been to this church. And he's introducing himself in many ways. So, Paul, why are you writing this letter? Well, there's a couple reasons that you need to know to help our understanding. First reason Paul writes this letter, and it's really kind of a secondary reason, but Paul, it's a missionary support letter. And you get there in the last chapter, so you've been on a project maybe, you're going on a mission trip or something like that, and you need to build a team and raise some funds. One of the things you can do is you can kind of write a support letter. Well, the book of Romans, believe it or not, was Paul's missionary support letter to the church at Rome. Look in uh, Romans 15, 24, it'll be up on the screen. At the end of the book, Paul says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul says, I'm going to come to you and spend some time there. That's my hope. And then from there, I'm going to go to Spain. Go ahead and put that other map. He wants to go from Rome, have it as a starting point to go to what he believed to be the ends of the world, Spain. So when we think of the ends of the world, we think of Irwin or Flag Pond, something like that, right? Paul, <laughs> don't send me any emails, please. Paul thought of Spain. In his mind, man, that's as far as we can go with the gospel. That was his heart to take the message of the gospel where it had been unnamed before. That was Spain. He said, Rome, I want you to be my sending church. And he writes them a support letter. Before he gets to chapter 15, he goes on a divinely inspired tangent for 15 chapters about the gospel. And then says, oh, by the way, will you be my support church and help me out on this mission to Spain? That's one reason Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. Second reason and primary reason really is Paul is defending the message of the gospel. Paul is a man who had been absolutely overwhelmed by the message of the gospel, by who Jesus was and what Jesus has done. And Paul, in defense of the gospel message that God redeems the guilty sinner through Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary, God saves by faith in Christ. And it's in Christ and Christ alone to defend and teach the implications of that into every area of our life, Paul writes this defense of the gospel. Now, I know you're going to find it hard to believe, but Paul in that day had some critics. He had some people that came against him and said, this gospel message you're teaching, Paul, there's problems with this gospel message. And here were some of his critics. Some wanted to say, Paul, this gospel message is just for a select group of people. It's just for the elite. And Paul writes, and he says, no, no, throughout Romans, it is for all nations, all people, all times. Some wanted to say, Paul, this, this message, you made it up. Some people wanted to say this idea that God saves through Christ alone, through faith alone, and it's not by our own works. You made that thing up, Paul. And Paul defends through the book of Romans, we're going to see in just a few minutes, he said, no, no, the source of the gospel is God himself from his lips. And in fact, it is validated from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. This book is about a God who saves through Christ. Paul says, God is the source of the gospel, not me. Someone to say, well, well, Paul, this idea that people are saved by faith alone, you're going to produce immoral people. That was the charge. And you've heard it say, well, listen. If you're saved by faith and grace alone, and it wipes away all of your sin in Christ, all you're going to want to do is go sin. 
Paul writes Romans 6 and he says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And gives a defense that the gospel, if you've been really transformed, you don't want to sin because your heart has been so changed by the resurrected Christ. The gospel produces holy people, is what Paul writes. He said, some had critics that said, Paul, your gospel is anti-Semitic. It's anti-Jewish. When you're holding up this Messiah that even the Jews rejected, they hung him on a cross. This is anti-Jewish. And Paul writes chapters 9 through 11 of the history of the nation of Israel and says, don't you understand the history of the nation of Israel and what's going on there? There's a future for Israel, and what's going on in Israel right now is actually grace to the Gentiles. Their hardening now means the gospel comes to you, Gentiles. But I've still got a plan for Israel, Paul says. And then someone to say, oh, hold on. These gospel people, these Jesus followers are going to be anti-Rome. They're going to be anti-government because they worship another Lord. His name is Jesus. They're going to be horrible citizens. And they said, in the Roman government, they said, we've got to squash this thing out. We're coming after these Christians. And Paul writes, he says, no, 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 no. If you understand transformed people, they will be living sacrifices unto God. They will be people of love. They will be people of submission. They will honor authority. And your culture will benefit by godly, spirit-filled Christians. And he writes about that in Romans 12, 13, and 14. And by the way, you have brothers and sisters in Christ today in places like China who the same allegation is leveled against them. If you follow Jesus, you will be anti-communism. Therefore, we must squash the church and squash the gospel and squash you if we have to. That's happening all over the world, by the way. And Paul writes, he says, no, no, no. What you have is transformed people who love like no other people on the planet. So he writes this letter to defend the gospel. John Stott said, Romans is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. So we're going to divide it up in four sections over the next few months. We're going to talk about chapters 1 through 4, the righteousness of God. Chapters 5 through 8, we'll talk about the grace of God, that what man could never accomplish, God did. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God in verses 9 through 11. Whoa, that'll be fun. I can't wait to get there. Paul ends that section and says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He is unsearchable. We're going to get there in just a few weeks. And then 12 through 16, the gospel produces living sacrifices unto God. And we'll talk about the gospel transforms lives. All right? So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to dive in as our time allows. I'm careful with the time. We're going to try to cover just the first six or seven verses here in Romans chapter 1. So go ahead and look there in your Bible. Paul's going to introduce himself. And Paul's going to introduce the gospel, if you will, and all the implications of it here to the Romans. So verse 1, here we go, says this. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now stop right there. He said, Pastor Mike, no wonder it's going to take us a year. You're going to stop at every verse? Yep, sure am. Verse 1. I don't know how you introduce yourself to somebody, but Paul is introducing himself to a lot of these people in Rome. And Paul says, my name's Paul, that's the way you started letters in that day, and here's three things I want you to know about me. Number one, he says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, normally in your reading, you're just going to, man, you're going to go right past that bondservant. Okay, what does that mean? Here's the meaning of that, packed with meaning. That word is doulos in the original language. If you were a Roman and you heard that word, you immediately thought, okay, that's someone who's under the authority of a master. Paul says, I want you to know something about me from the beginning. 
I am under the authority of a master, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Jews who heard that word heard something a little bit different. The word doulos, as it's translated back in the Old Testament, meant something different. It was the idea of a bond slave, and it was this, a willing slave. Someone who is a slave or a servant willingly. In the history of the Jewish nation, slaves who were with families were set free. Every seven years, all slaves were released. What would happen at times is some of those slaves who were set free would return to that family and return to that master because that master had loved them so much and honored them so much and cared for them so much. Even when they were given their freedom, they returned to willfully serve that master. And Paul says, listen, yes, I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'm one willingly because he has set me free and I've given my life in service to him. In the Old Testament, when a servant would come back to that home and say, even though you've given me my freedom, I want to serve this family and I want to serve out of love for you, they would do something really strange. They would take the ear of that servant and they would take almost like an ice pick, and he'd say, where's this going? And they would nail the ear of that servant to the doorpost of the home as a sign of love. You say, could they come up with something else besides that? Well, here's the point. They're saying, you are now fastened to this family. It was a picture of you are completely brought into this family now. In the same way God has said, you are now brought into the family of God. And the servant who would have his ear nailed to the doorpost is saying, my ear is permanently open to the voice of my master. Isn't that awesome? So Paul is saying, I am under the willful service of another master. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a bondservant. He said, I'm called as an apostle. This is like Paul giving his credentials. He said, I didn't choose this mission. I didn't choose this assignment of proclaiming the gospel. I was called by God himself. Paul saw himself as one sovereignly called by God, commissioned by Jesus to speak on his behalf. And you say, that's pretty awesome, Paul. Oh, by the way, that's the same credentials for every child of God. If you're here and you've been born again, you may not be an apostle of Jesus Christ in the same way Paul was, but you are a sent one with a message set apart by God for God to make his name known. Right? Just like Paul. Paul says, I'm a bond slave. I'm called as an apostle. I am set apart for the gospel of God. Paul saw himself as one with a mission. The word set apart is the idea that this is huge. I mean, we're not even through verse 1. This is so convicting. Paul said, I recognize by God I have been set apart for a mission and a purpose. As if to say every career choice, every decision, where I plant my life, how I make my decisions, how I spend my money is built around the reality that I've been commissioned by God to make known the gospel. That is challenging to me. How about you? Because the point from Paul as saints, us here today, it's no different for us who have been transformed by the gospel. Paul goes on, or or Tim Keller, a commentator, said to Paul, this gospel is so great, he's willing to separate himself from anything. Wealth, health, acclaim, friends, safety, and whatever, in order to be faithful to his calling. Wow. Paul says, I have received a calling from the great king, and everything in my life revolves around 
So Paul introduces himself that way, and then he goes on, and he says, all right, and let me, let me talk a little bit about this gospel message that I have, Paul says. He ends verse 1, and he says, I'm set apart for something. What is it? The gospel of God. The gospel of God. Now, what I'm going to do, I, I've got just a few minutes before we finish. There's, there's a ton of truths. Paul gives a summary of the gospel message here. He's going to expand these things throughout the rest of the book of Romans. But he gets so excited. He hits just a few things here in these first seven verses. I'm going to give you four truths about the gospel message that come straight out of these verses. All right? Paul says, let me tell you about this gospel of God. Number one, the gospel is an announcement of good news. The gospel is an announcement. It's not a theory. It is an announcement of something that has been done. The word is eongelion. You say, Pastor Mike, I am so impressed by that. You've studied your Greek. You're awesome. I'm trying to impress you. It's important. Because in that day, if you walked around and you heard the word eongelion in Greek, and you were part of that culture, Roman culture, it meant good news. Oh, you got something good to tell. Yeah, I've got an eongelion. I've got a message to tell. Everyone understood the idea of good news. In fact, the emperor, when a child was born or when the Roman army would win a battle, they would have this announcement of something that had been accomplished and something done. It was an eongelion, an announcement of good news. Everybody understands that. They understood it here, but Paul says, listen, I have the announcement of something accomplished, but it's the gospel or the good news of God, he says. Everybody in this room understands that when you think something is good news, you can't wait to tell it, right? Look at social media. When you have something that you think is good news, you tell it, man. You are an evangelist. We all are. Let me give you an example. My wife told me about a Facebook post, which is really scary, always, that she came across. And there was this person who was so excited about the good news, they wanted to share this with what they felt to be good news. And they went into great detail about their dog's weekly grooming that they had just found and how their dog gets a brand new bandana every week. And they were so excited about it. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares that Fluffy gets a new bandana every week. Fluffy doesn't care about her bandana. What's the point? <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, here's the point. Here's the point. <laughs> you will talk about what you consider to be good news. You will. They all understood the idea of good news. And Paul says, listen, what I have been set apart to do, what grips my life is something that I find to be infinitely good news. It is the message that God saves rebellious, guilty, guilty sinners through Jesus Christ. And we place our faith in him. And Paul said, my life is constrained to proclaim that. It is good news. And when we don't understand what good news it is, it is because we don't understand the depravity that we are in our guilty situation apart from Christ. Because when you understand you're guilty and condemned, the good news is good news. And Paul spends the first three chapters of Romans, by the way, explaining we're all guilty. And the good news sounds really good. 
The gospel, Tim Keller says, put most simply is an announcement, a declaration. The gospel is not advice to be followed. It is news, good news about what has been done. Jesus has accomplished. It's the gospel. Secondly, Paul says here, as some had accused him, he says the gospel was promised long ago. Verse 2, he says, this gospel which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. What was Paul's view of the Bible? He says, it's holy. Paul had a high view of scripture. And he said, this message of the gospel is not something I dreamed up. It's not something I contrived. It has been in the pages of scripture from day one. You can go all the way back to Genesis. Adam and Eve, from when sin entered the world, they knew they were separated from God. They covered themselves with fig leaves. God entered the garden and said to the serpent, to the woman, no, no, there's going to be one from you one day, Eve. And your great, 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 great descendant is going to crush the serpent. And the serpent's going to bruise him on the heel as a picture of Jesus Christ on the cross all the way back in Genesis. This is chapter 3. The end of Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are doing that silly thing of trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, it had to look so weird. The Bible says God entered in and he clothed them with animal skin. In other words, there was a death that took place, there was blood that was shed so God could cover their shame. And Paul says, Listen, throughout the word of God, there is a picture that God will redeem and God will accomplish what man could never accomplish. That's the gospel of Christ. It's not new. It's throughout history. Thirdly, quickly, Paul says in verse 3, he says, the gospel centers on Jesus, the God-man. Listen to verse 3 and verse 4. There's so much here. He says, this gospel message that I've been entrusted with, that's not new. I didn't come up with it. It's, it's concerning his son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. What does that mean? In other words, Jesus is the promised one. He's a man who was born the great, 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 great grandson of King David, just like he was promised. The great, 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 great son of Eve, just like it was promised from the beginning. He is a human being in the flesh. But at the same time, not only is he fully human, verse 4, he was declared the son of God, fully God, with power by the resurrection from the dead. That is an awesome statement. Paul says, listen. The centerpiece of this gospel message is one who was promised thousands of years ago as a descendant and the Messiah. It's him, Jesus. The one that is the centerpiece of this message is the God-man. He's the second person of the Trinity. How do you know? He was raised from the dead and the resurrection declares this is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And listen, that's very important. You say, well, that's just kind of theological mumbo-jumbo. Are you kidding me? If Jesus Christ is not all man, he cannot be your Savior because he had to die in the flesh to bear the sins of man. If Jesus Christ is not all God, he didn't have the capacity to bear your sin. But as God, he has the capacity to absorb the full wrath of God. He has the capacity to absorb all the sins of the world, and he did so, and he's the only one that could do it. God, man, Jesus, he's the center of the message. By the way, one of the humbling things about the gospel is that the gospel is not ultimately about you or me. <laughs> Say, hold on. We're benefactors. 
We receive the blessings, but the gospel does not center on how can I help good old Mike down there and be a blessing to him. The, the gospel is how can a holy God declare his glory and his greatness and his mercy and his kindness for all eternity. He does it by dying for the sins of wretched mankind and making himself known. The centerpiece of it is God himself. It is a humbling reality. See, every works-based system says, okay, I'll earn my way, I'll achieve righteousness so that when I'm finished, I can hold up my hand and say, look what I've done. The gospel says, no, 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 you can do nothing. Look what he has done. That's the point. That's the message of the gospel. It's about Jesus. And fourthly, we'll finish on this one, and then we'll prepare to take the Lord's Supper together in just a few minutes. I'm going to read to you verse 5, and then I'm going to give you the, the fourth reality. It, verse 5 says, Through whom, Paul says, we, speaking of himself, we have received grace and apostleship to bring something about. Something's going to be the outcome of the teaching and the preaching of the gospel in the lives of people. And here's what Paul says, To bring about the obedience of faith. Paul, what does that mean? You will circle that little phrase and talk about this in life group next week. It's so important. Paul says, the obedience of faith is what the gospel will produce in the life of someone. When the Spirit of God opens the eyes of someone to see who Jesus is, their need, that Christ has accomplished everything, something is produced. The, new the, the NIV translation gets this one right. It literally says, the obedience that comes from faith. Okay, help me, Pastor Mike, what are you saying? What Paul is saying is this, that the gospel message is, yes, a declaration of what has been done. And listen, and at the same time, it is an invitation. And the invitation of the gospel message of who Christ is, what Christ has done to a guilty sinner, the invitation is to respond in faith. We respond in faith, repenting from our life, repenting from ourselves, coming in faith. And Paul says that kind of saving faith will produce a life of obedience in the person who believes. The Spirit of God opens the eyes. We respond in faith. And if it's genuine faith, there will be the following transformed life that will give evidence that the faith was genuine. Did you get that? In other words, yeah, I, I've responded. I walked an aisle and I signed a card and I've done all this stuff, but now I don't have anything to do with that. And Paul says, no, 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 that's impossible. Do you remember 1 John that we spent weeks in just a few, back in the fall? John says this, if anyone says he abides in him, then he will manifest a life of obedience to the commands of the Lord, meaning we are saved and redeemed by faith alone, but genuine saving faith is never alone. It will manifest itself in a life of worship and obedience and submission perfectly? No, no way. It is a ups and downs and zigzags of the Christian life. But when someone has been changed by the power of the gospel, there will be radical change that will manifest itself over time. 
And the power of the gospel message of who Jesus Christ is, is not just for the spiritual quadrant of your life. Well, I want to get my spiritual side worked out here and I'll work on everything else. The power of the gospel transforms every area of your life or it's not the gospel at all. Understand? So Paul says, I, I hold out this message and the response is faith. And genuine, transforming faith will produce this life of obedience. And he spends the rest of the book of Romans telling us what that looks like. Into every area of our lives. And he goes on, verse 5, and I'll wrap it up with this. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Where, Paul? Who's this message for among all the Gentiles? Who's that in the whole world? Paul says, you you think this gospel message is just for a select few? He says, there's not a single person that has ever been born or will ever be born that is not in desperate need to hear the message of the gospel and can be radically transformed forever by the power of the gospel. He says, it's for all the nations, and what's the end game? For his name's sake. Ultimate purpose is the glory of King Jesus. That a person who was dead in sin can be raised to life by the power of the gospel and their life is so transformed by a life of worship and joy and love and life that is only produced by Christ. And what is the reason for that? Because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps? Because you figured it all out? No, you were dead. Somebody gave you life. And the glory goes to the one who gave life. That's the point of the gospel. He wraps it up in verse 6, he says, among whom you, speaking to the Romans, he said, you, you believers there, you are the called of Jesus Christ, meaning the word called, we're going to see it used throughout the book of Romans, it is the effectual sovereign call of God, meaning if you're here, Romans, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not because you're the smartest guy in the room, it's because the God of heaven called you by sovereign grace, meaning you don't get the credit. God does. That's the point. That's humbling to us. Humbling. He says, to all who are beloved of God, you are beloved in Rome. You are called as saints. That means set apart ones by grace of God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes to a community of believers who had been transformed by the gospel message. And he writes to them so they'll know who they are in Christ. He writes to them so they'll understand the mission they have in Christ. It's as if he's writing to a redeemed community of Jesus followers who are on mission together. That was a joke. Y'all get that? We say that every Sunday. It's kind of our little tagline. I'm praying over the next few weeks that we as individuals and families are transformed by the incredible book of Romans. Together in community with one another. The gospel transforms us as a people of God and transforms those who don't yet know Christ and their eyes are open to King Jesus. Would you pray with me? I'm going to invite David Brewer is going to come on down. He's going to lead us through the Lord's Supper together and then we'll celebrate that as a church family this morning. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for what you're going to do over the next few weeks together. We are humbled, we are needy, and Lord, we are desperate for the living manna that comes from your mouth, Lord. We love you. Prepare us now for the Lord's Supper, in Jesus' name, amen.